0: This episode of Nixa Talk addresses the upcoming liquidity rule deadline and what asset managers need to understand as they prepare their operating models. You're listening to Nixa Talk, a show aimed at providing building blocks for best practice implementation to executives in the global asset management industry. Nixa Talk features targeted content from Nixa's live webinar programming. More content for your on-the-go, easy listening can be found at nixa.org. I'm Allison Lovett, your Nixa host, and on today's show, we're talking about the common challenges of implementing effective liquidity risk management practices in compliance with the SEC liquidity rule. Nixa recently invited our friends from Deloitte to address some of these concerns with the Nixa membership. Let's listen in as Robert Zakim, Managing Director at Deloitte, provides his perspective on these issues.
1: So, liquidity risk management, <clears throat> I, um, I heard early on that Never had the SEC issued a rule that engendered such outrage as this one and the comments that were received and the and the outcry to change the elements of the rule, which they ultimately did from the proposed to the final, but I don't think as much as people would have hoped. We've laid out an outline of the overview of the rule, although I suspect by now um in January 2018, people are pretty acquainted with the rule and hopefully are working towards its implementation. But I think they've realized two things. One is that as they've dug into the elements of of the rule and and their efforts to establish a liquidity risk management program, they have a lot of the elements already in-house. They're just sitting in various places. And it's a matter of uh, bringing them together in a comprehensive way. More importantly, this rule is not getting extended. And nor, in my opinion, is it going to get changed. Um, it is what it is. <clears throat> and so now, um, how do you deal with it? I'd like to take the opportunity to highlight a couple of things, however. So in the monthly classification, into the four buckets, there are two that really have consequences, and we've encouraged clients um, as they look at their program to bear this in mind. The highly liquid investment minimum and the illiquid security percentage. Violating those, breaching those have consequences. However, some folks... Are only concentrating on those and, and are of the view, well, we're gonna focus on bucket one and bucket four and, you know, we don't really care too much about what lands in bucket two and three. The problem with that is that much like any other element of mutual fund data, this information will wind up In the hands of investment consultants, 401k administrators, we're already hearing in, in due diligence questionnaires, uh, the consultants are asking about this information. And so you want to be as precise as possible so as to not put your funds at a competitive disadvantage when this information starts getting out into the public domain and, and, uh, which I believe it undoubtedly will. Um, the um, the reporting is at the end of the month. People are also taking the view. Well, that's when we'll focus on it. I mean, it is a program that it should be dynamic. That has elements again that have to be monitored on a on a uh, daily basis, and I would not lose sight of that. And then the disclosures and reporting, making sure that you can connect the information that is relevant to this program gets fed into these other elements uh, we've indicated n1a and port and N-SEN. so those are you know those are some things to bear in mind as you go through this, uh, but we'll turn to now some of the challenges that we've seen. And believe it or not, at the top of that list seems to be who owns this program. Um, we've worked with a number of registrants who can't seem to figure out or are having a hard time placing this in the right uh, department of their organization. Um, I don't know if it's just a game of hot potato. Or if they truly don't know, who should be owning it? Um, there are de- obviously risk management elements to it. There are compliance elements to it. There are operational elements to it. Um, what we are seeing, generally speaking, is that people are going with a committee type of arrangement to, to administer uh, as the designated administer, administrator of this program, uh, a committee structure similar to what you might see in valuation. Uh, so bringing together different areas of the firm to weigh in on the program and, of course, the investment folks having um, uh, a contributing voice to the overall decisions made by this body. Uh, data management, uh, making sure that you have the right information to not only administer the program, but then in turn to feed this information into the filings that need to be made. Um, Parameterization, um, I think that's a word that we might have made up, Um, but um, there are a lot of open elements in this rule. That were left so purposefully, or so they claim, by the staff to afford flexibility for firms to kind of tailor the program to their business model, to the strategies that they um, invest in, and um, uh, and the like. So there are a lot of elements throughout this rule that require some defining, and um, uh, as as you go through and construct the program. Um, words like significant movement to the market or primarily were, again, left undefined to allow you to define them for your business. Um, that's gonna be an important aspect of creating the program and moving it forward because without those definitions, you're you're shooting at a moving target. Um, The highly liquid investment minimum is a topic that a lot of folks are talking about. The rule does provide that if your fund invests primarily in highly liquid securities, you don't need to establish this highly liquid investment minimum. Um, Firms are struggling to some degree with do they not establish one for those funds that so qualify, but does that leave them exposed if something happens? Does it create compliance challenges if you've got one set of funds with a high limb and another set of funds without a high limb? I've heard some practitioners say that they are advising their clients to just establish a high limb and make it easy, make life easy for themselves. Others are taking a more, you know, nuanced approach around these are the funds that require it, these are the funds that don't. We don't want to establish something that we don't have to. Um, the other aspect of that is what is primarily. Some people are looking at it as fifty one percent, some people are taking a two thirds, uh for those of you uh, old enough to remember the names rule when it came out, it was 80%. Um, so people are also looking at where do they draw the line in establishing that a fund is primarily invested in highly liquid uh, securities. So that's the parameterization aspect. Technology, again, the connectivity with the reporting, the information from vendors that firms Many firms are uh, engaging to provide liquidity information, uh, making sure that they're getting that information in, um, creating monitoring dashboards to monitor the program and how what aspect of it is monitored by compliance versus by this administrative body. Uh, so those are some aspects that people are looking at in the technology area. Um, lastly, in recently published FAQs from uh, the SEC, two topics were, were uh, taken up, the in-kind ETFs and the determination of what is de minimis for cash redemptions by an ETF that classifies themselves as in-kind and um, sub-advisors, and, and the sub challenges in particular are things that we've heard um, a lot of registrants speak of because of the way the business is done today, uh, many investment firms out there either serve as an investment uh, sub-advisor, hire sub-advisors, they may be both, they may have one or the other and also sponsor their own funds. So they've got their own program, a sub-advisor may have their own program. If they don't sponsor funds, they may not have their own program. So reconciling the way this business operates today with the primary and sub-advisory uh, structure, I think uh, engendered a lot of Questions and um, a lot of coverage by the uh, staff when they issued these FAQs. And you can you can delegate responsibility to a subadvisor. Uh, I've used the term. You can have a a push model or a pull, so you can push information to them and have them validate it, or have them create the information and send it to you uh you don't need to reconcile against multiple subadvisors you can have differences from one fund to the other what you can't have however is if you have multiple subadvisors within a single portfolio and you have two subadvisors that give you different information then you need to reconcile that because you have to file for each fund a security has to fall into one bucket um, some people are taking the view that They'll take the lowest common denominator. But again, is that the right approach, given how this information may be used, or do you take a weighted average between the subadvisors? There's many different ways that you can accomplish uh, landing in one bucket where you have multiple sub-advisors in the, um, uh, in the fund.
0: You've been listening to Nixa Talk, expert panels discussing today's most compelling asset management issues. Nixa is a trade association in support of professionals within the global financial community. Come back often and feel free to add our podcast to your favorite RSS feed or follow us on Twitter at Nixon News. Access to the complete live programming, including CE credits, is available to Nixon members. For information on how your firm can become a Nixon member, please visit Nixa.org and view our membership page. For over 50 years, Nixa has been connecting global asset management participants to discuss and develop industry best practices. Join the conversation today.